1,200 weapons now have walked, right? Walked across the border? Yeah, and we, we're starting to learn that now. Like I said, at first I was like, they have to be interdicting. If something has to be happening, what it was was they were up on wiretaps and they were listening, which actually makes it more appalling to me because you know what they're doing in advance of them going there. I mean, we would get the calls from the gun dealers, right? But the other thing that's appalling about that is they're, the gun dealers are calling them. So they know that these guys are going to the gun dealers before they go there. They're getting the calls from the gun dealers like we did. Now the gun dealers are still selling these guns thinking that ATF is interdicting them, not knowing that ATF's watching them right off into the sunset. So while this is going on, and it's this again, this is it's not something I'm seeing firsthand, but I'm I'm you know, I'm putting the puzzle pieces together in my head. And then several meters uh, meetings later, um, Brian Terry gets killed. Welcome to Game of Crimes. Yeah, I, I did the Tunnel to Towers run this year. That, you're right. It's an um, an amazing organization. Uh, I didn't run it. I'm not going to lie and say I ran the whole 5K. I, I probably ran about half of it. Yeah, uh, but you only have half a lung. I mean, you only have half your lung capacity, right? Yeah. Yeah, but both my kids and uh, the gentleman I believe is going to be my future son-in-law ran it with me. So it's it, we've turned it into a family thing to, nice. to pay tribute to the folks that fell on that day. You know? Very nice. Yeah. You know, the uh, a lot of the statistical databases that are out there that show the deaths of police officers, they include 9-11 related deaths now. Yeah. That's one of the categories. And they should be added to the wall. I mean, the folks like that ought to be added to the wall um, in, in Washington, D.C., the National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial. They ought to have their names up there. I, I know they were doing some of that with COVID. Well, if you can do it with COVID, folks, you can do it with 9-11. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Because they're just out there helping people. Yeah. Um, well, how... How long were you assigned to 9-11 duties before you went back to doing ATF stuff? Well, the first month, we pretty much were only doing 9-11 related stuff. And then after that, it was like you could volunteer a day or two here or there, either work on the pile or work out at the landfill in Staten Island. And then the rest of your time, you were spent working cases. I mean, the special agent in charge at the time was a guy named Edgar. Um, you know, he wanted it that way and he's right. You know, there were some people who were pissed off figuring, Hey man, if they're not finished digging, why are we working cases? But you know, in reality, we're an investigative agency and we had, you know, we had cases pending in court and you don't want to leave bad people on the street. So, um, you know, but he, he mandated that we went back to work as, as quickly as possible. And, uh, so we, we got back into things rather quickly. Oh, well, uh, you know, I, I think we'll talk more about that later, too, especially towards the end, like some of the stuff you're doing now, like the speaking you're doing and talking about PTSD. But um, you still have the the dreams, anything that's affecting you now today? Yeah, it's mostly sleeping is not fun anymore because, you know, that's when, you know, when you lay in there in bed, just things pop into your head. But, um, you know, I, I'm I'm pretty lucky. You know, the, the uh, meditation has helped. And it's funny because when I first started, though, when it you, know, you think, well, you know, you think it, it, that. You think it's going to be easy, but it actually takes practice to get okay at meditating because it's hard to just block things out of your head and just focus on one particular thing that, that you made it. So it took me a while. At first, I was frustrated and gave up on it, and then I was encouraged to hey, try again, try again. But, but finally, you know, and it, you could you could meditate just focusing on anything. It doesn't mean just sitting there not thinking of anything. You can meditate by by paying like specific attention to a drum beat or or some or movement of water. I mean, there's so many ways that you can do it. Um, there's a, a 
guy in Florida named Anthony Perfetta. He, he was a uh, doctor who uh, left medicine and now teaches meditation. And, uh, you know, I got to give him credit because it was him, and especially like even during when I was dealing with uh, the cancer, my blood pressure, man, my doctor thought I, my brain was going to explode. I mean, he was saying I, he worried I was going to have a stroke. And, um, you know, I was taking all kinds of other medications for the cancer at the time that I didn't want to take um, blood pressure medications on top of that. I was like a vegetable to begin with. And um, so he coached me on meditation and I actually wound up getting my blood pressure back down to like below normal levels. So it works if you give it a chance, um, you know, so, but yeah, there's a lot of ways to skin a cat. That's the one that worked for me, you know? See, I can think, I can think, okay, now if I'm sitting here trying to clear my mind, it's going to give me an opportunity to think about all the things I got to do today. <laughs> yeah. Well, Murph, you're either meditating or you're asleep. I'm never sure with you what you're doing when I see you over there on the other side anyway. You have to learn how to sleep with your eyes open. That's right. Yeah. Those. What was that old saying, that military saying, anybody found dead at their desk will be immediately dropped from the payroll, you know, in an upright position. But anyway, hey, uh, so... But I mean that. I mean that, that's one of those things. Obviously, that lives with you forever. There's a lot of people that have stories we don't have, and I don't have near the story you do. Just other than being in the Reagan Building that day, and remember the Pentagon burning, seeing the smoke come out, and my wife was freaking out because there was you couldn't get through on cell phones. No way to make a call. Mm -hmm. Had to walk to Roslyn. Um, the Hyatt there in Roslyn. So if you think about where the Reagan building is, walking across the bridge, you can see the Pentagon and then got to go finally get to a place where I get a hard line and I can make an outbound call. And But yeah, we watched the second plane hit, you know, and then we I was there at Roslyn watching the TV when the towers came down. And it's like, um, you know, it's just one of those things. It, and that day too, out here, living in Northern Virginia, you know, we're next to Dulles Airport, planes coming back and forth all the time. You got Reagan, you got BWI, but that was the eeriest sound that night too, because there were no airliners flying. It was all co what they call combat air patrol. It's that crisp, clean sound of fighter jets, you know, patrolling and they're ferrying people to Mount Weather. Um, you know, they've got helicopters going, taking, you know, uh, political leaders, military leaders and stuff. So yeah, it's one of those things that, uh, yeah, everybody who's around, you know, has got a story on that. Yeah. 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 hundred percent. Well, let's, let's start moving forward a little bit because, um, I want to start laying the groundwork for how you got involved in operation fast and furious, you know, and, and like you said, we want to focus too on the book that you talk about writing. So let's start setting the context. When this thing really started kicking off, when you first had your first contact or when you look back now and say, this is when I started getting involved in this thing, how many years on ATF did you have and what were you doing? Well, I touched on it before. Like I left New York in um, February of 2007 and, you know, Fast and Furious, the, the, the group, like I wasn't involved in that case at all. Uh, the group that um, was put together to work Fast and Furious was Phoenix Group 7. Originally, when I first got out to Phoenix, our group was the Mexico-bound firearms trafficking group. And what we would do is, you know, we would get information from gun dealers all the time. You know, like a lot of people want to portray gun dealers as this gray market, nefarious, underworld, shady group of people. They're not. They're businessmen and women. So they would call us and say, hey, look, we, we got this this uh, this guy just came in with a bag full of money and he, you know, he, he wants to buy all the uh, Norinco AK-47 type rifles we have, which they're not AK-47s. They're semi-automatic. You know, um, the media doesn't portray it that way. They make it sound like it's the actual collision off fully automatic machine gun, but that's not the case. So what they would do is they would call us and we would start heading out and they would slow roll the paperwork. And when the person would make that purchase, uh, we would follow them, 
you know, a distance away from the gun shop and we would pull them over and we would ask them questions and they'd lie. Just, you know, we, we've all done this, you know, r- routine policing, you know, Hey, where are you coming from? Oh, I was playing soccer. Hmm, okay. Well, do you have anything in the car? No. And we'd escalate it. We, and we, if we had multiple people in the car, we would separate them, catch them in lies. And, and their stories, their stories never match up. You think that they would figure this out by now, but you got four guys in the car. You're going to get four different stories. Where are you going? Going to the mall, going to eat, going to the hospital, you know? Right, right. But I mean, each of these stops, we almost already had probable cause based on how they, you know, the suspicion of the of the gun dealer who are professionals. But we had to escalate that and, and see for ourselves what was going on. So the, the first stop that we were involved in when I first got the Phoenix was a, a, a U-Haul van with 13 AK-47s in the back. And we, we stopped the guys, we catch them in lies. And, you know, my agents are like, all right, boss, we're, we we just spoke to the U.S. Attorney's Office. We're letting them go. Uh, we'll indict them later. And that was kind of new for me because in New York, I worked dozens and dozens of cases. If we caught a violent person, we handcuffed them. And the U.S. Attorney's Office, you know, they would write a complaint. We would charge them. So I was like, okay, all right, I'm a new supervisor here. I'm going to see how this pans out. Well, I would watch that unfold again. And again, so like, well, where's where or did we arrest those people? Well, the U.S. Attorney's Office is, is um, they're still looking at the case file. And so this would go on. I mean, I, I wouldn't even say dozens of times because it would be an understatement. Um, and then let's it, hold before you get too far involved in that. Let me ask. Let me just rewind a little bit. Where, when did you first become of the name aware of the name Fast and Furious? Fast and Furious came about in around 2011. Right? Okay. So this is this is a couple of years later, but th- this is the untold story. Is that there was a path that was paved to led that led. That, that's to this what I was here. getting at. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, you're you're talking about the context, all the things that are going on because you're letting people walk, right? Right. Uh, right. Now, right. are I, guns walking at this point, or just people? People. And but we're and we're seizing guns like it's going out of style. I mean, like that first car stop. If I if I stopped a car with 13 AK-47 variant rifles in in New York City, it would be like the top news story there. Nobody gave a shit at the U.S. Attorney's Office, and it wasn't. I mean, look, Arizona is a gun-friendly country, so it, I, I understand the, you know, the, the different dynamic. But from a law enforcement perspective, it was a bit shocking because these weren't good guys who were buying guns to go hunting, and the U.S. Attorney's Office wouldn't prosecute them. So then we had another case that was um, real interesting in that there was a guy. Well, there were 22 people killed in a town just south of the U.S.-Mexican border called Cananea. Um, Four of them were cops. A bunch of other cops were captured and tortured. And one of the guns that was used in that killing was bought the day before in Arizona. And what ATF generally looks at when they trace guns is time to crime. So any gun that's used within like two years of its purchase is suspicious. One year is pretty suspicious. One day is astounding. So we find the guy who bought the gun. We get a confession that, yeah, I gave it to a guy. It wasn't for me. He admits to a straw purchase. We find a trafficker. The trafficker admits to bringing the gun to Mexico. We bring that case to the U.S. Attorney's Office. They decline to prosecute it. Why? Because the gun was in Mexico, which means the body of the crime is in Mexico. So what happens is we're like, wait a minute. The body of the crime is this form that they filled out and lied. It's it's lying and buying. it. That's the crime. They refuse to charge it. This pattern went on for, I mean – my entire time there. Every now and then they would take something, but for the most- Were these directions coming out of the AG's office and DOJ, or was this just, were they freelancing it on their own out there? 
they were freelancing it. So what happened was I got so frustrated that I, I eventually, because we were doing this every night. We were stopping cars, seizing guns. My vault, I mean, if you look at news footage from around that time frame where they show the inside of a gun vault, more often than not, that's our gun vault. Because our PIO, Tommy Mangan, who's a dear friend of mine, was freaking amazing at getting the media to come out and get attention on what was going on in Phoenix with the Mexico cartels. I mean, Arizona was their gun store and granted, you know, Texas as well. But I mean, it was astounding that the the stuff that we were stopping and seizing, no one was going to jail. So I I got frustrated and I called the attorney general of Arizona's office because, you know, one of the problems we had, like a lot of the times the county would take some of these cases, but the challenge was these traffickers that go to Yuma, buy a couple guns, drive up the Flagstaff, buy a couple guns. So now you have multiple counties and, and the prosecutor's offices felt it was messy and they didn't like it. So I, I, I called the Arizona Attorney General's office and said, hey, man, you guys share jurisdiction over all these counties. Would you guys be interested in taking some of these cases? And they're like, well, we don't work gun cases. And I'm like, oh, shit. All right. They go, well, yes. So here we had to like put together this kind of ad hoc training session on how these cases work. You know, and so the Attorney General's office is finally like, well, look, you know, we don't have a lot of bite because, you know, the charge that we can facilitate here is it's called a fraud schemes and artifices for lying on business records. So, but finally we were actually now stopping cars and arresting people. And the attorney general's office for Arizona, who normally worked white collar and fraud cases, were working cases. But the federal prosecutors were going home by 3.30 in the afternoon, and they were still declining our cases. So it gets funny. We have another case, this guy, Victor Varela, who was trafficking 50 caliber rifles to the Juarez cartel. Um, One of his rifles is used to kill a Mexican military commander outside of a daycare center. So Mexico's pissed off and they're putting pressure on the U.S. So we we break that case open. We get confessions. We get proffers. And um, we pitch that case to the U.S. attorney's office figuring, hey, man, this is a high profile case. They'll take this one. They decline that one, too, saying, hey, body of the crimes in Mexico, corpus delecti. So Arizona attorney general takes it prosecutes the guy. Well, when it starts making international news, the U.S. attorney's office gets pissed off and says, hey, why didn't you bring it to us? This is the U.S. attorney. Like, hey, clown, we did. You said no. So then, you know, they pretend now that they're interested in cases again. So the rules change. Now it's like any case that we get, we have to pitch to the U.S. attorney first. And nothing changed. So they still were like, nah, declined, declined. Guns are in Mexico, declined. So Right. Hey, so wait, wait. Hold, on, hold on a second there. It's There's got to be more to that. There's got, I mean, were they just lazy? I mean, how could you decline this many cases by saying, well, it's the bodies and you got the crimes being committed in the United States. What did you ever figure out? What was motivating them to just decline? I can see them declining one or two cases because they look, this is going to be problematic because of this or this. But you think they'd at least adopt nine out of every 10 cases. What what was really behind the declination of these cases? I think you nailed it. I think it's um I think it was laziness and a little bit of arrogance. And it's funny because we had like we had another instance where we had an informant that was the the impetus for uh, you know several gun cases that the U.S. Attorney's Office decided that he refused to use them. Well, it's because he would have brought a bunch of cases there. So, but long story short, you know, after a few years of dealing with that, because you know in two thousand. 
2010, roughly, um, Phoenix then became the home invasion capital of the United States. So my group's function was changed, and it was because of the work that I had done in New York with Red Rum, where I was considered one of ATF's experts on working home invasion cases, where not the sting operations, but like the historical cases. So my group, our, our primary focus changed to work in home invasion cases. And this new group, Phoenix Group 7, was stood up to work um, Mexico-bound firearms trafficking cases. So they're doing their thing. They're working out of a different building. They're not with us. And what happened was you know, I'd go to supervisors' meetings every Monday. And I remember this one time when there's a meeting and our special agent in charge is talking to George Gillette, who's the ASAC. And, uh, the, and they mentioned a case where they have 600 guns that had been purchased. And, you know, my thoughts at the time are, okay, this is interesting. You know, some, we inspect gun dealers records sometimes, and sometimes we find out about schemes looking at those records. So I'm thinking, oh, this is historical purchases that happened in the past. This is going to be a great case. As meetings go on, and again, I'm not in that group, you hear the numbers on that case going up. We were over 700 guns on that case. So finally, like me and a lot of the other supervisors are like, Hey, are you guys like stopping these straw purchasers? Like, and they're like, no, 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 we're doing something different. And I was actually kind of told by George Gillette, like, oh, almost kind of insinuated under his breath that I was some sort of an idiot for questioning how they were doing because they were doing something new that no one else in the in the country was was doing. And I was like, all right, you know, in my head at that time, I'm thinking they got to be doing something. And I didn't think in a million years it was watching guns right off into the sunset while they were waving goodbye to them. You know, I didn't know they weren't interdicting guns, and people in the in the other groups didn't know that at that point either. So. Um, you know, eventually they get up to around 1,200 guns, and I'm just – I'm starting to make noise at this point. Like, hey, man, what – and I'm basically just kind of told to mind my own business. The other ASAC was a guy named Jimmy Needles, who I worked for in New York. He was a good guy. He was scratching his head saying, Pete, I can't figure out what they're doing. The only thing I could say is I know that if you and me were running this case, it would not be getting run this way. And I testified about most of this stuff in front of Congress. The hearing is still on YouTube. I mean, so it's all there. But – um. Hey, and hold on there for a second. I want people, you've mentioned Red Rum a couple of times. I don't think people understand kind of the significance in law enforcement when you say the word Red Rum, because that's murder spelled backwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The DEA has uh, Red Rum groups in a lot of big cities. In New York City, the Red Rum group worked a lot of home invasion cases and uh, and murder cases. And in my opinion, it was the best investigative team in the city of New York, hands down. And they were better than the homicide squads, most of them. Uh, you know, they were as good as the cold case squads. Those guys were amazing. So I got to work some cases with them, and I really learned a lot. Um, and uh, what we did there is kind of what I was trying to replicate in Phoenix. But um, yeah, so that's what the Red Room teams uh, did in the bigger cities where they were a lot of murders and a lot of drug yeah, and gun and I kind violence. of pulled you away from that you were talking about. It's what you testified before Congress. But let's keep going because you were talking about this. It's like at some point there's 1,200 weapons. Um, 1,200 weapons now have walked, right? Walked across the border? Yeah, and we, we're starting to learn that now. Like I said, at first I was like, they have to be interdicting. If something has to be happening, what it was was they were up on wiretaps and they were listening, which actually makes it more appalling to me because you know what they're doing in advance of them going there. I mean, we would get the calls from the gun dealers, right? But the other thing that's appalling about that is they're the gun dealers are calling them. So they know that these guys are going to the gun dealers before they go there. They're getting the calls from the gun dealers like we did. Now the gun dealers are still selling these guns thinking that ATF is interdicting them, not knowing that ATF's watching them right off into the sunset. So while this is going on, and it's this again, this is it's not something I'm seeing firsthand, but I'm I'm you know, I'm putting the puzzle pieces together in my head. And then several meters uh, meetings later, 
um, Brian Terry gets killed. I was just about to talk. Let's 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 lay the groundwork for that because that weapon yeah. was traced back to this Fast and Furious. So Brian Terry was a uh, Border Patrol um, agent. Yes, a heroic Border Patrol agent. Uh, by all accounts, a great guy. Never met him. Wish I had. Um, so he's dead. And then what happens is one of the agents that's in Phoenix Group Seven uh, contacts Senator Grassley's office. And tells them that what's going on in that group. And then at that point, we start in the other group starting to hear about that. Um, but then a couple meetings later, it's I, I, it blew my mind. I'm sitting there and Bill Newell, who was a nice guy, um, but- certainly – well, he was inexperienced. I mean, Bill was a guy who spent probably three years in the street between being both a supervisor and an agent. And he – he was, you know, look, he was a nice human being. Um, he was a good administrator. But had he had the experience that he should have had in that role, he would have put an end to this thing in advance. Instead, he trusted George Gillette, the ASAC, who was um, kind of a sinister guy and probably the most hated supervisor in all of ATF long before Fast and Furious. So but when when Brian Terry dies, um, John Dodson blows the whistle. And at a meeting, Bill Newell tells us, hey, man, look, just so everybody's aware, um, just be careful. The U.S. Attorney's Office isn't happy. Um, they, they've even mentioned they may indict John Dodson. And I'm just sitting there like, part of my language, guys, like these motherfuckers for all of those years wouldn't indict the people that we were catching smuggling guns. But now they're going to talk about indicting John Dodson. Um, and I didn't know why they were going to indict him. I knew he was a whistleblower. I didn't know what was going on. And so at that, that point- Was Dodson the one that went to Grassley? He's the first guy that came forward and went to Grassley, 100%. So at that point, I was like, this is bullshit. So I went home and stewed on it. And then I told my wife, I said, look, I told her what was going on. And my wife's always been like, hey, man, you you always you got to do the right thing. You know, you're a father. Your kids are looking at you. You're a leader now. Your people are looking at you. So um, I called Grassley's office myself. And, uh, and I said, listen, I said, you know, that guy Dodson, you know, that everybody's saying is lying. He's not lying. I said, you give me a subpoena. I'll tell you everything you want to know. And so wasn't much long after that, uh, I'm sitting at my desk one day on, on the sixth floor uh, over there on the Bank of America building in Phoenix, and my phone rings, and it's a guy named Carlton Davis. Uh, and he's like, hey, Pete, Carlton Davis from the Committee on Oversight and Government Reform. How are you? And I was like, I'm okay. <laughs> yeah. He's like, hey, we have a subpoena for you, and um, we can either come upstairs and present it at the office, or you can come across the street, and we'll hand it to you at the hotel or, uh, or we can come out to your house in Gilbert and serve you there. And I was like, all right, uh, I'll be right down. So I went down and um, I told what him. What is the process for – so real, let's just talk about this real quick. What's the process when you're a federal agent and you're getting served a, a subpoena? Is there a, is there a particular process? Are you supposed to just go right out and accept it? What's, what, what are the rules around that? I had no idea. But I look at this point, I, it was the right thing to do. And I knew that I had to give a copy of the subpoena to ATF counsel. And I, I did that very day. But I went down and it was nice is when he hands me the subpoena, he was there with another guy who was now, I think, the special counsel for the U.S. guy named Henry Kerner. And um, they said, Pete, we're really interested in your historical dealings with the U.S. attorney's office. Um, so I was like, OK, this is good because there's a problem there. And in my opinion, what was going on is. These agents, because the, the case agent on, on Fast and Furious was a girl named Hope McAllister. She worked for me. Hope um, was not a big fan of doing car stops. 
uh, as agents. She thought that, you know, the way it should work is we should call the locals and they should be the one stopping the car. So she used to give us a lot of grief when we would stop cars. I had a different take on it. You know, we get paid pretty well as ATF agents. And I didn't think it was appropriate to, you know, to have some cop who got paid a lot less than us put himself in harm's way for us when we got lights and sirens on our cars. So, but what happened was, um, you know, uh, hope, in my opinion, didn't like to do the stuff that we were doing. So now with the U.S. Attorney's Office, with their policies, kind of gave her an out, you know. And the other thing, um, you know, with, with this whole thing about not prosecuting when the guns were already in Mexico, I couldn't understand for the life of me how the uh, the strategy of that case is let all the guns go to Mexico. And it's the U.S. Attorney's Office who wouldn't take those cases even because during – Because the guns were in Mexico. The Exactly. Exactly. So here, I mean, even while Fast and Furious was going on, if we had a case that came up that involved guns in Mexico, we were told, Pete, you know our corpus delecti policy. We can't take that case. Well, they were working this huge case where they knew the guns were going to Mexico. And for some reason, they believed that they would be able to utilize the Gun Control Act to take down cartels, which is insane when you think – of you know there is no firearms trafficking statute and it's funny because I, I mentioned that at the hearing and it, uh, people thought I was like anti-gun that's uh, I was talking about it from an investigator's perspective there's no leverage you know I mean straw purchasing doesn't carry a lot of time I know it can face up to 10 years most people get probation and you can't do what we were doing in New York like bring somebody in and flip them when it's like wait a minute I can talk to you and piss off the cartels hmm or I can go see a probation officer once a month for three years. Hey, fuck you. I'm going to, you know, I mean, they weren't going to cooperate. So, but that's uh, my point is the, the, the lack of leverage made the concept of, well, maybe we can take down the cartels impossible. DEA with 846 and, you know, I mean, which carries substantial sentences, they couldn't take down the cartels in, in, in Mexico at the time. We certainly weren't going to do it with the Gun Control Act. So it really made no sense. Um, what they were doing. And the, the, the sad part is like, you know, after that, John Dodson, myself, a couple other guys that stepped forward, Carlos Canino, who was the assistant attache in, um, or the deputy attache in Mexico, we all became uh, persona non grata. Um, and, you know, the U.S. Attorney's Office started after I testified at the at the open hearing, came after me. Uh, I was accused of perjury um, for talking about the case that they declined. Um they were declined in writing. One of them was declined with a 21-page declination letter, and they, they basically told ATF and the Attorney General and the OIG that, um, that they had never declined those cases. It was, it was mind-blowing what was happening um, out there in Phoenix. Well, Unbelievable. Where, so let's, let's kind of rewind just a little bit because I want to figure out, did you ever figure out historically now who the fuck came up with this idea to let guns walk? This new way of doing things. I mean, uh, I get it when I, I mean, you hear the stories, too, of when people started realizing, like, how they could use conspiracy, because I think it was in the 60s. People started realizing, hey, conspiracy to traffic five kilos gets you as much of a sentence as actually trafficking five kilos. You know, I can see using the law a new way like that. What? Who thought that you could come up with a new way of enforcing something by letting guns walk and go across the border to do the exact same thing you were declining to prosecute cases in the first place? I mean, where did this come from? Was it a U.S. attorney? Was it DOJ? Was it, you know, uh, the AG's office? I mean, where did this come from? It, it was it was 
the chief of the gun unit in Phoenix, but I, you know, I also got to blame his predecessor, who who was very high up in the Phoenix U.S. Attorney's Office. Now, by the way, the, these people are still there. Um, Emory Hurley was the prosecutor on that case. He's still an assistant U.S. attorney in Phoenix. He's in the civil division now. His mentor and a person who came up with this whole corpus delecti mess was the number two or still is the number two at the U.S. Attorney's Office currently, Rachel Hernandez. Um, I testified about their involvement. Nothing happened to them. The agents that that spoke up were all run out of town, myself included. Um, you know, Luckily, I had the support of the new director of ATF that came in, who by, ironically was appointed by um, Holder. Uh, this guy, B. Todd Jones, was very supportive. Tom Brandon, who was the deputy, was very supportive. So I had some top cover that was helpful. It wasn't Immediately, it was obviously after the uh, original um, folks that were in command got replaced. But yeah, it, it was um, it was Emory Hurley. And and here's something that's not well known. While Fast and Furious was going on, there was another case that I was supervising out of Yuma that involved a white guy uh, named John Baptiste Kingery, American, American born. He was married to the chief of Mazatlan police's um, daughter. And he was traveling around the state of Arizona, and he was buying um, inert grenades, you know, the ones you could buy at a flea market or the ones that say, you know, what, what the people put them on a trailer hitches and whatnot. And But he was driving all over the state of Arizona buying these inert grenades. So I had an agent in Yuma who's like, hey, Pete, we don't know what he's doing. You know, he could be making, you know, lamps. He could be doing whatever, but he, we suspect he may also be making grenades. So our thing was like, okay, well, we need to investigate him. So we begin investigating this guy, Jean-Baptiste Kingery, and we start looking at his border crossings, and he's crossing the border a lot. Uh, so now that turns into, all right, well, now we need to surveil him. And if we find out he's getting gunpowder, if we find out he's having stuff delivered to his house and he has all the components needed to make a grenade, we'll call the bomb squad. We'll hit his house. But all of those other parts aren't illegal. That you can own them. You can own a million of them in your house. It's until you have the components to make an explosive, you're, you're good to go. Um, but we, we believe that he's smuggling the things into Mexico. The question is, is he assembling them here or is he doing it in Mexico? So we, we continue this investigation. It's going on for a while. It's assigned to the same prosecutor who's the lead prosecutor in Fast and Furious, that guy I mentioned before, Emery Hurley, who's telling people, you know, hey, just we'll indict him later. We'll indict him later. One straw buyer in Fast and Furious straw purchased over 800 guns. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And we'll indict him later. This is Emery. Right? Did they so, ever get indicted? Yes. Yes. Yeah. After Brian Terry was killed a little late in the game. And yeah, there's no, really there's no, it's not a greater charge to, to purchase 800 over 100 or 50. It's the same charge. So it's, it's the, the whole, um, you know, idea behind it was asinine. But anyway, this guy Kingery, we, we've, were able to determine was manufacturing grenades in Mazatlan. And he was selling them to the uh, Sinaloa cartel. And also the uh, there was a new emerging cartel back then. Murph, help me out. CJNG. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Jalisco new generation. Yeah. generation. Right. Yeah. right. So um, so we, we eventually speak to his kid, which was kind of interesting. And he, the kid tells us, yeah, when I go down with my daddy, what he does at night, he goes outside and works in the yard, but he makes us sleep with the light on. Right. Which is this is a little kid because, you know, when you when you turn on the lights, you know how you see you see your reflection. So he's doing it so that the kid couldn't, but the kid put his head up and saw his father playing, making these things. And he tells us. So now we have information that he's making the grenades and we determined that 
parts of those inert grenades crossing the border are illegal. You could charge the Arms Export Control Act, um, but it's not a meaty charge, but it's something. So we're told, well, that case doesn't by the, by Emory Hurley. That case has no jury appeal. But let's 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 continue to work it. So we work it. So anyway, well, this guy on, sounds like a freaking expert on everything. When the hell did jury appeal come into making the decision whether you charge a violator of the law or not? Right. Jury but, appeal. No, but, but so listen to this. So um, I don't know develop- how much more I can listen to before I just get a bat out and I just start beating the shit out of a desk or something. Go, what the hell? Yeah. Well. Anyway, and, and that's believe me, I live this man. Talk about frustration. Um, so em- this guy gets caught. Baptiste John Baptiste Kingery gets caught crossing at the San Luis port of entry. He gets scanned by CBP, and they look in his tire, right through the X-ray, and they can see there's 114 disassembled grenades in his tire. So now the port gets shut down. Because they don't know what, maybe some of them are live. Bomb squad has to come. They take the tire apart. So finally, we we call Emory Hurley. And we're like, hey, man, look, he got caught. We know what he's doing. Because originally, like, hey, if we catch him at the border, can we arrest him? No, we won't prosecute him. Again, we're going back to no jury appeal. And what Emory went and said, Pete, he can just say at trial, he's making those hilarious complaint department take a number of grenades. And I'm like, well, they're not that funny, first of all, but who gives a shit? The defense is always going to say something. You know what I mean? So let's not assume what he's going to say in advance of even arresting the guy. So, but anyway, now we have a chance to interview this guy, Jean-Baptiste Kingery. So I drive down to Yuma. A case agent was in Albuquerque. He drives from Albuquerque, which is an ungodly drive. I have a really good agent down in Yuma that's there already named Bob Landis. Bob's handling it. And we get Kingery in, and Kingery's like, yeah, I've been making grenades for the Sinaloan cartel. I, I estimate I've made about 800. Um, tells us how he makes them. Um, explains to us that sometimes he would also take um, – information from the cartel people south of the border to deliver to folks north of the border to include like who they wanted kidnapped, who they wanted killed on thumb drives, right? So we call Emory Hurley. We think we got it. We had a, a, a because it was CBP that did the stop, we had ICE people with us to include an ICE attorney, but he was also an agent. And they were like, hey, man, this is great. We call Emory Hurley, the prosecutor. He's like, now, nah, Pete, you know, if he if the confession comes across as coerced, um, he can always say that, you know, we, we could lose this whole thing. And I, I really don't like the jury appeal. So he says, we need more. I think so. All right, so we just wrapped up an interview where we got a confession that this guy made 800 bombs, for lack of a better term, for a cartel that's bloodthirsty. These are, you know, um, and it, it, one of those you roll into a bar. It's not like shooting somebody where you have to show some intent. You throw that into a bar, you can kill 20 people. You're telling us to let this guy go. Yes, we need more. So we, I say, well, what if we get more out of him now? So we bring him in and we interview him, and we don't get much more, but we're, I guess we're we're getting more pinpoint accuracy on what we already tell him. So Emery, um, we call him again, and he's like, Pete, we don't have enough. I'm ordering you to let him go. So we make this determination because what he, what he does say is, we'll look at it in a couple of weeks, and we'll probably indict it. So we tell this guy Kingery, you know what's going on, and he's like, you don't understand, guys. They saw you guys take me. He goes, the cartel watches the port of entry. And if he walks, they're going to think he snitched and they're going to kill him. Right. So he's like, you guys have to arrest me. And we're like, when's the last time you heard a criminal going, arrest me, please arrest me. 
So, but anyway, so but Emery will not relent. He goes, we'll look at it in a couple of weeks. And I set up a meeting for with him and, and another prosecutor, Tracy. They were going to come meet me in two weeks, and we were supposed to talk about indicting. So what we do is we tell John Baptiste Kingery, hey, man, you need to stay in touch with us because he wants to be arrested. We, we, we gave him the impression that we would continue to meet him. So what happens is two weeks pass by. And he was meeting with us because we wanted we wanted to be able to locate him so that when that indictment happened and Murph, you guys both know where we're going. We call him up. Hey, meet us at the Circle K and we slap handcuffs on him. Well, those two weeks go by and he's meeting with us. Another two weeks go by. I meet with Emery. Emery explains how this is not going to happen. At this point, I'm even calling the Southern District of New York because they were working a case where a Mexican Marine got charged with possessing a machine gun and using it in, in Mexico in, in part of a case they were prosecuting. I'm like, and I know they just had prosecuted Afia Siddiqui for disarming and shooting a, a military member in, um, in, in, I believe, Africa. I'm like, so they, it's like, wow, this would be great. Can, you, can we determine if any wires, did money come through New York? Did he purchase any of the parts from within the Southern District? We'll take it. They literally were willing to charge the guy in New York, right? But in Arizona, they would charge him. So anyway, long story short. Time, we, we're meeting, we're meeting, we're meeting. U.S. Attorney's Office in New York determines there's no venue there. We can't get an indictment. Baptiste Kingery disappears. So we later learned that he just, because now he knew we were onto him, which was something I'm afraid of, he just changed his ways. He was still doing what he was doing. So we continued to get enough information, thank God, that we were able, finally able to let the Mexicans hit him. And when the Mexicans hit his house, in Mazatlan, which was a, another whole story because the Mazatlan police tried to run the ATF personnel who were down there. Murph, you know how it goes. When you're down there, you're, you're not, you have no power. So our people are down there saying, hey, that's the house. That's all they can really do. The PGR is getting ready to hit the house. The Mazatlan police, Kingery's father-in-law, comes with his team to try to usher these people off to scare them off. They dig in. My friend Carlos Canino, who's with me, calls the Mexican attorney general. They then send like more reinforcements over. They hit the place. And John Baptiste Kingery had on hand, this is after he got caught with us, enough material to make between 800 and 1,000 more grenades. Plus, he had a milling machine where he was taking the AK-47 rifles, uh, the knockoffs, and the AR-15 rifles that were smuggled into Mexico, and he was converting them into machine guns, Right. And we knew all of this stuff was going on almost a year earlier, but Emery Hurley kept kicking the can. So you have this one prosecutor that's kicking the can on Fast and Furious, who's also kicking the can on this grenade smuggling case. Um, and he's still at AUSA in Phoenix, Arizona, and most of his bosses are still there in, in Phoenix as well. But yeah, so Fast and Furious, I put as much weight on, on the prosecutors as I do on the agents. And I, I'm not going to defend the agents to say it was a good idea at all because it wasn't. I, I can't see any rationale where it would have worked, frankly. But, the, you know, that's the untold story is that, you know, everybody likes to blame ATF and, and not really know that there were things that led up to that that went on for years. Well, well you know, and the bottom, the, here's the question. How did, how did that prosecutor and his office service the citizens of the United States? That day? How do they protect the citizens of our country? by continually deferring those and refusing to prosecute criminals. I have no idea. And, and I'll, I'll give you one more, Murph. When I testified at the hearing, you know, uh, some of the look, some of the questions were idiotic and clearly very political, and some were people that truly seemed to want to get to the bottom of what was going on. And there's a congressman named Trey Gowdy. I, he was a former prosecutor. Well, he asked me, because I told him about that we weren't allowed, there were no proffers in 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 Arizona. They didn't allow it. They didn't believe in, you know, working defendants that way. Um, so 
he asked me questions about why they don't proffer. He found it to be like appalling because it is. Well, Eric Holder, as a result, sends a letter out to all the U.S. attorney's offices saying that from this point forward, you know, um, you will proffer all firearms defendants, period. Well, the chief at the time, one of the chiefs from the U.S. attorney's office, a guy named Harold Sukenik, Howard Sukenik, excuse me, comes to my office to have a sit-down meeting. And he begins to tell me that his office's position, which you always knew you were about to get it, you know, something shoved up your backside when it, is, it starts with our office's position. Our office's position that a proffer is the letter that a defense attorney sends to us saying that his person uh, wants to come in and talk. Um, and from this point forward, if we get such a letter, um, you know, our office's policy is that we will only discuss what's in the four corners of that document. Where everywhere else I worked, a proffer was an interview with the defendant, and you talked about everything they knew so you could build other cases, but also so that when they got on a witness stand, there wouldn't be any surprises because you knew everything that they were involved in. So Plus, th- plus there, was, there was the agreement that whatever they told you during that interview, you would not charge them with as long as it wasn't murder. You couldn't talk about a murder. Correct. And, but if you if you backed out of the agreement, we eventually – you could use other means to build that murder case. So you're entirely right. Some, some place they so, – so basically, they even changed the definition of a proffer to avoid doing work in that district. And, and, and other than the U.S. attorney at the time, uh, whose name was Dennis Burke, who I was told by a friend of mine who's a reporter um, who was covering that story, he – he did not lose his job for Fast and Furious. It was the stuff with the Kingery case that actually um, they asked him to um, – they, they said they were going to fire him, but they gave him the option to resign, and he resigned. So he lost his job as a result of Kingery, which was separate from Fast and Furious, but in my opinion, part of the whole scheme that was going on out there. So, But yeah, I mean th- there's, there's a lot more to Fast and Furious than what was put out in the media. And the other thing that was weird is, yeah – the, the politicians obviously had their their corners that they dug into, but a lot of media outlets were more political than the politicians during Fast and Furious. Well, well this result this resulted in uh, Eric Holder uh, being, being held in contempt of Congress, right? Yeah, the only Attorney General ever to be held in contempt. Let's rewind a little bit, though. I want to talk about Brian Terry. Um, let, let's talk about that case for a little bit because, like you said, that's really what kind of blew the doors open on everything that was going on here. Um, what? What was your involvement with that when he was killed in terms of tracing down the weapon or coming up with that information? And when that information was discovered, there had to be a big, oh, fuck moment that one of the guns that was let walked was the gun used to kill a federal agent. Yeah. Well, you know, we were not allowed to be part of that, uh, especially because people knew that I was talking to Grassley's folks. I was really not involved in the trace. I I understand that one of the guns found at the scene was a a weapon that was smuggled with Fast and Furious. Um, But yeah, I don't don't know if it was the actual murder weapon or if it was one, because Brian was ambushed by a a robbery crew in the desert. So I, I don't know the details, but I know one of the guns that was involved was purchased by one of the straw purchasers that was uh, a target in the Fast and Furious case. So it's definitely related to the case. Do you know the time to crime like you were talking about? How long ago was it purchased to the to the uh, and then how long how much later was it when they found the weapon? It was less than a year. It wasn't long at all. I don't know the exact time of the crime, but it was, you know, again, we look at anything less than two years as something that's worth further examination. Anything less than a year is obviously, uh, you know, considered a hot lead for us. Um, it was less than that. You know, one other thought about this whole thing, the, the concept of this investigation to start with, and then the U.S. Attorney's Office refusal to do anything about it, saying that, you know, the, the body of the crime is in a foreign country. Well, the idea of letting weapons go 
into Mexico. Let's see. Now, last I checked, Mexico is a sovereign country, right? We don't own them. We don't control them. And let's see, what's the cooperation between our countries? Minimal. So, so we're letting these weapons go into Mexico, and we're probably thinking, I mean, as an investigator, I'd be thinking, well, okay, if we can prove some things in Mexico, we could go down and get copies of that evidence and produce that in a court in the United States against the defendants, if you can get the defendants back up in the United States. The whole thing is just asinine to start with. It, it, it's, it sounds like somebody came up with an idea that thought, this is what I'm going to build my career on right here. That's exactly what it sounds like to me. Well, you know what's going on, Murph, and you, you'll get this because I used to see this as a cop. You know, if you if you grab a guy and you could put ten vials of crack on the table, right, and take a picture, it's like you fucking kidding me? Like really? That's, that's a nothing arrest. You put a hundred vials of crack. Whoa, okay. You put a couple thousand. So what was going on in their minds was as the numbers got higher and higher, they would almost get like excited, like somehow it was a better case. That's. It's asinine. It's stupid because each, you know, I mean, it, it, the case doesn't get better when you have more and more and more guns. And again, there's no firearms trafficking conspiracy law. They weren't looking at because one of the things that we brought up with Kingery, with with Southern District of New York, and, and the U.S. Attorney's Office laughed at me when I said this in Arizona. I'm like, well, what if we say because he's saying he's doing it for the cartels, right? And they're using it to protect their drug turf. Why can't we charge him with aiding an 846 conspiracy? Right. And they're like, well, that would never float. And Emery's exact words, well, this is the Ninth Circus. They'll never honor it. Don't, don't give me advice that you got from your people in New York. Don't talk to me about what the second. So what's Circus. an 846 conspiracy? It's, it's a straight up narcotics conspiracy, which, yeah. I mean, comes with significant penalties and uh, forfeiture. I mean, there's so many things that come along with being able to charge that. It's, it starts off with a minimum mandatory of 10 years. And then it just compounds based on, you know, your participation in the organization and the amount of drugs involved. And then if there's violence and there's weapons, I mean, you can get if you can easily get people up to 30 to life on that charge. Yeah. And think about it. I mean, you know, one of the things with weapons a, a, under the firearms laws, a, a an explosive is a firearm under the National Firearms Act. So if you're using a firearm in the furtherance of a federal crime of violence, which drug trafficking is, right? So you, if you just have it, it's five years. If, it's, if you brandish it, it's seven years, unless it's a rifle or a shotgun. Well, this is a, a, under the NFA, um, he would face 30 years for using an explosive. So here, Kingery would have looked at 40 years in prison, 10 for the narcotics conspiracy, and then another 30 for the, ninth, uh, for the um, 846, no, I'm sorry, 5862D. D, whatever uh, statute, the NFA violation. So, I mean, Kingery was looking at substantial time if they would have done their job. I've somehow erased that statute from my brain now that I'm retired, but so forgive me. But yeah, I mean, that's how it worked in most places in the country was if you had a really bad guy, you hammered him. And if he wanted to get out from under that rock, he could cooperate he and give up on people. Right. Yeah. Yep. What was that, that? What rule was that again? When you cooperate, uh, if you cooperate, it's called, it's a certain rule number that you can... Uh, uh, you got a 5K letter. But there's, I think it's Rule 35 or? Rule yeah. 35, there's, there's a Rule 35 hearing. But generally, if you cooperated, you, you, the prosecutor would give a 5K letter to the judge, and the judge can go below a mandatory minimum. Other because than you that, provided substantial cooperation, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I mean, you yes. did your, your civic duty. Let's, let's, let's talk about this, though, because I'm very interested. Um, once you talked to Grassley's office, once you appeared in front of congressional um, uh, investigators, you know, in front of Congress, the Senate, what happened when you went back to the office? Let, let's start talking about how you got treated. Well, I, 
what happened was they replaced the Phoenix um, command staff right away, which was kind of sad because Jimmy Needles was a really good boss, and they took him out because he was there. Um, he wasn't involved in Fast and Furious. Bill Newell, again, was a nice guy, um, but his inexperience caught up to him. You know, George Gillette was removed, and good riddance. Um, you know, uh, we were kind of treated like I, I was – I was originally still allowed to run my group, but then what happened was the U.S. Attorney's Office um, kind of blackballed me when I kind of – Dennis Burke, who was the U.S. Attorney, sent an email to all of his staff saying any contact with Pete Forselli, even if he's seen having a cup of coffee on the weekend with his wife and kids, is to be reported to me immediately. It's almost what? verbatim. Yeah. What? Yeah. The, U- <laughs> the U.S. Attorney sent out a thing to his staff saying that any contact with me, even if I was observed having coffee with my wife and kids on the weekend, was to be reported to him immediately. So I that email was sent to me by because I had friends in that office. I didn't. I wasn't. I, I fought with them a lot, but I, you know, I was diplomatic. And some of the prosecutors that had come over from the county's office that wanted to do their jobs were friends. So a couple of them were like, "Hey, man, we need to meet." So it, it was like, you know, hey, let's grab coffee. And then, so they hand me this thing, and I'm like, does, "Does this mean that you have to report this to the U.S. Attorney?" And they're like, "Hey, fuck <laughs> him." So some of them were clandestinely on my side, but the command staff there clearly wasn't. So what happened was, you know, as as a first line supervisor, your job aside from leading your people is to be an advocate for your people at the U S attorney's office. So I was in a position where I couldn't do that anymore. So I, I went to my special agent in charge, a new guy, Tom Brandon. And I said, Hey Tom, I, and he's like, Pete, I agree with you. So they, they removed me from my group with my concurrence, but headquarters wouldn't let them transfer me. So I was stuck with this kind of, you know, uh, is in a limbo where I was basically reading like old after action reports from like the beltway sniper investigation and shit like that. Because, um, I, I, couldn't do my job because the U.S. Attorney's Office wouldn't work me from that point, and and that you know that that wasn't going to change. Did they ever try to to uh, imp- impose the Giglio restrictions on you? No, they did wine? better than that. They they accused me of perjury. They said that my testimony in front of Congress uh, was a lie, and that Emory Hurley never declined the Victor Varela case, and that he never declined. Uh, there was another case, Excalibur Arms, which was a, the only dirty gun dealer I ever saw in my career, where the, the guy himself was like helping facilitate um, transfers directly to cartel members and had no, even his post Miranda confession, he's like, I don't give a fuck who cares. Yeah. About a thousand of my guns are in Mexico. Who cares about those people? You know, pretty much in some in substance. So, but um, yeah, so uh, things never changed. Yeah. But yet, but yet you had in writing where they were declining your requested prosecutions. Yes. Well, luckily the OIG there, they did not, spend much time investigating me for the perjury because they knew that that was a crock of shit. But one of the other things that they try to say with the Kingery case is that ATF didn't want to arrest Kingery, that um, that we wanted to use him as an informant. But the nice thing, thank God, is I called the U.S. Attorney's Office in New York and tried to get him prosecuted there. We gave all the information to the Mexicans. If You know that if Kingery is in custody in New York or in Mexico, how's he going to be an informant? I'm not going to, you know, we're not going to, so I mean, their assertions made no sense, but the OIG, it took them about three years to finish their investigation into those allegations. Um, so, you know. why? We, we, so first of all, how the hell do these people get away with it or continue to get away with it? And number two, why does it take three years to figure out something that's just so fucking obvious on its face? All you got to do is talk to a few people, read a few emails and go, yeah. Politics. Politics. Well, it it's, sucks. It sucks. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, but look, the nice thing is in the end, once the OIG finalized their report, um, the director of ATF, again, the guy that uh, that came in after the, the train went off the tracks, tapped me to, to come in and, and lead uh, ATF's leadership and professional development division. And it was because of what he saw that I went through with this. He's like, hey, man, you've had some really unique experiences, and I think you'd be a great guy to come in and, and you know, run our leadership development program, which was weird because I'm not an academic by any stretch. And it kind of put me in like an uncomfortable, not uncomfortable, bad, but it put me in like new territory where I wasn't on solid footing. So I had to do a lot of learning. And it was in the end, it was a, you know, it was a nice assignment. Well, but was it, was it, um, was it that, was it a nice thing to do to you or was it their way of just getting you out of the field, but without making it look like you're getting punished because they don't want to incur the wrath of Congress or another IG report? I think it was a genuine move. I mean, because they really empowered me to do a lot of stuff. Um, you know, so I, you know, I'm not going to say that there was an ulterior motive. Not with those guys. There were some people that I had some enemies in ATF after that, but most of them, um, you know, were they weren't in a position to do anything anymore, and, and a lot of them were removed. Like a lot of people think no one was fired as a result of Fast and Furious. And look, there's some people who probably should have been fired that weren't, but um, there were a lot of people that were removed from the organization. Um, you know, uh, and some of them, I, I don't really necessarily think even deserved it because they didn't really know what was going on. But when you look at it from the other perspective, they had a duty to know what was going on. And, and perhaps they should have, you know, paid a little bit more attention to what was happening in Phoenix. So, you know, none of us are perfect. But, you know, when you when you take that oath and take that badge to protect and serve others there, I think there's an implied expectation for you to know what the hell you're doing. Yeah. Right. Well, Murph, you know what's the scary thing? Like I said, Bill Bill Newell probably was a better father than I was. He was a kind man. Um, he's a, he's, act, a, he's an old friend of mine. Active in the community. I didn't know you knew Bill. So, but yeah. Bill, I I like Bill. I you know uh, I don't like what happened to him. I don't like that he went out that way. He deserved better. And the Fast and Furious never happened. That dude might have been the director of ATF one day. Um, he was you know, but. His fall, I thought, would have served as a cautionary tale to folks to, hey, man, learn the job, like be an agent for a while and make cases before you promote to a GS-14 supervisor position and then run a group for a few years because you don't learn how to run a group in two years or three years, about five years, you're, you're, you know, but – you know, so I, I thought it would serve as a cautionary tale, but what I saw is like towards the end of my career is people were climbing the ladder way faster than Bill Newell, and you know what that is? That's a recipe for disaster because when you don't know the job and you haven't been on the witness stand getting your ass kicked um, and prevailing because you know your case, I mean, those are learning experiences that you don't get overnight, but now, man, there's there's guys and gals who have promoted to the highest levels of ATF that really have not spent much time yeah, and these are the folks who want to take the express elevator and not the stairs. It's like, I just want to get to the top. And it's like, no, you got to work your way up. I mean, you got to do that. Like you say, the hard slog. There's a reason why in most places, whether it was with me on the patrol or even other places, you got to be on five years for they even let you test for the next position because they figure you haven't learned anything yet until you've been on a substantial amount of time to where you've got enough experience. You can make those kind of decisions. Right. You know, 100%. And it's, uh, you know, well, I've always, we've always DEA and ATF have always gotten along. We're probably the closest linked of all the federal agencies. Uh, a lot of our cases cross over. Some of my best friends are ATF agents. We've had uh, several ATF retired agents on here who have had horrendous stories, just yeah. like you, about the headquarters. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, was it Jay Bayless? K uh, the, Chris Bayless. Great Chris guy. Bayless. Yeah, and Jay Dobbins. Um, yeah. And, and Lou Velozzi, and it's it's. Uh, 
it's 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 very disheartening to hear that, that your headquarters keeps doing treating their people like this. Well, the, the weird thing is, you mentioned Jay. Jay was in the Phoenix Field Division. He was based down in Tucson. I didn't really know Jay very well. In fact, the first time I met him was when I got slapped with that subpoena, and I met Jay at a bar with Tommy Mangan, great guy. Um, and Jay warned me. He goes, "Hey, man, you better you know watch your back." He goes, "Because if you're gonna blow the whistle," he goes. They're going to come for you. And he was right. Like, Jay gave me good advice. But before Fast and Furious even happened, there was a morning where I came into work. And I used to always stop in and see Tommy, the PIO, and we would bullshit because we were good friends. And I, I didn't see him one day. So then the next day, he's not there. And I was like, well, maybe he's sick or something. So I called him. And that's when I found out that Jay Dobbins' house um, got firebombed. So I went upstairs. And I was like, hey, man, to, to Bill Newell, like, hey, Bill. Like we have an agent whose house was firebombed. Do you need my group to go down there? Because I mean, my thing is, I was always taught when something happens to a cop, you go down there in numbers and you show that we give a shit. Well, Bill, his response to me was, "Well, no, I spoke to George Gillette, who was the ASAC who ran Fast and Furious, by the way, and George assures me it's just minor scorching, right?" So um, I'm like, "Okay, well, all right, no big deal." Then, who I guess. gives a shit? They just attacked a federal agent. <laughs> Well, it, well it gets, that's like it, saying I got shot at by the cartel, but it's just a flesh wound they missed. It's only a little scrape on my arm. Right. But no, it gets better. So what I, I find out, because I talked to Tommy Mangan and Tommy's like, that's bullshit. So anyway, long story short, um, I find out that George Gillette had restricted the case and made it a grand jury case because you can't look at grand jury material. There's like a, a box you check to make it a 6E case so no one could look at it. And then he's directing the the agents that are involved to send him their reports in Word documents that he would edit and put into the file, which is unheard of for an ASAC to do that. So I was like, this is bullshit. Well, then one day while Fast and Furious is going on, Jay was also fighting with ATF over some other stuff, including that firebombing. And I see a picture of his house on Fox News one day. And I was pissed. I'm like, that motherfucker, George Gillette, is a lying sack of shit. That house was like significantly burned. So George was full of shit. So the, 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 my point is the ASAC that ran that whole Fast and Furious investigation was a complete and utter, just a, a sinister human being, like in, in every aspect of my dealings with him. Sinister. Uh, yeah. And you know what, for our listeners, it's it's not just the fact that they came after Jay, that they firebombed his house. It's the fact that they've come after his family. And that's what makes this so much, so significantly more important with us with, from, in the law enforcement culture is, you know, we accept, we know we're going to catch grief for, the, for doing our job. And you, if you don't know that, you're in the wrong damn line of work or you're not doing your job. But when they come for your family, it's a whole new freaking ball game. So that's what made it so significant. And, and I mean, what you, your proposal is exactly what should have happened. Headquarters should have been flying people into Phoenix to get out to Jay's house and show those jackasses out there that you're not going to do this to one of ours. Yeah. You should have had a hundred raid jackets out there collecting evidence, letting everybody know, okay. But you know what it is? That's the New York cop and you coming out too there. Yeah. Well, but, it, it, but it's also, hey, look, as a community member, you stick together. I mean, it, you don't even have to be in law enforcement to understand that. And here's a guy that, you know, had uh, his house was attacked, which is, you know, it, is bad. I mean, if you don't feel safe in your own house, um, but yeah, to minimize the damage, I thought, you know, when I saw it on TV, I was like, Oh my God, like I just was really pissed off. And it just, it kind of told me a lot about one of the guys who in, in essence was one of the architects of that whole fast and furious mess, you know, lack of judgment, lack of character. You know, you mentioned, uh, you've, you've, uh, just so our, our listeners know, you've mentioned the Southern District of New York, which is the, uh, one of the federal judicial districts in New York city. They've got the Eastern district and the Southern district. 
And the Southern District has the reputation of being the most aggressive federal prosecutor's office in the entire country. I love them. I've, you know, I've worked with a lot of them up there. They even prosecuted some of the criminals out of Columbia for us up there, uh, as well as the Eastern District did is, you know, on top of that. But Southern District has a reputation for you got a crime, let's prosecute the son of a bitch. Let's, let's see if we can f- establish venue up here like they were trying to do in your case. It's a shame that they didn't because they would have followed through. And, and you know what? They just, they'd have given Phoenix U.S. Attorney's Office a finger and like, hey, if you don't have the balls to do it, we do. I don't think that wasn't part of my motivation. I knew it would have embarrassed them. But look, I thought taking stuff to the Arizona Attorney General's office would have embarrassed them. And, but <laughs> no. they, you know what? If you don't care, it's, it's not easy to embarrass someone that doesn't so, care about shit. How do you sleep at night when you're these assholes realizing your decisions? How many lives do you think were lost because of decisions like this? Well, look, the, the, the guns that were smuggled to Fast and Furious aren't, they're not, you know, stuff that, is biodegradable, so to speak. You know, they don't disappear. They're not perishable. Um, I don't know. I would imagine hundreds. I know that Kingery's grenades, too, have shown up at scenes. Um, I, I, George Gillette, the guy I spoke of, he straw purchased the gun personally that was used to kill a, a beauty queen in Mexico. I mean, it's, you could Google it. He was the ASAC. In Phoenix. I mean, there was stuff that went on in Phoenix that just blows my mind. But, um, yeah, I, I, hundreds, hundreds. And the, the sad part is, just like 9-11 keeps killing people because the cancer's, you know, in our bodies, well, those guns are still in That's Mexico. Curious is killing people to this day. Yeah. So an ATF, does an ASA, an assistant special agent charge, that's a GS-15 slot, yes. do they carry a caseload? Do they work undercover? No. Yeah, no. it's an administrative position, basically. Yeah, I wasn't ASAC. What I dealt with is I dealt with the shit that the GS-14s were afraid to have conversations about when they had like a bad performer or something. I didn't carry a caseload. You know, I went with to the SAC to meetings. You know, I mean, it's, yeah, to your point. Yeah, George Gillette working at putting stuff in the case management system. Unheard of. Unbelievable. Unheard of. Yeah. Unbelievable. What, whatever happened with that guy? Uh, he, he's, well, he was first, uh, sent on a detail to the marshal service, which sucks because the, like DEA, the marshals are good friends of ours. I don't think they wanted him there. And then eventually he was forced to, uh, to leave the agency, but I think he was able to retire. Um, so I, I after that, I don't know what happened to him and it's probably better if I never hear the guy's name again in my life, I'd be happy, but. You know, I, I'm so glad we had you on the show here, Pete, cause it, I knew very little about fast and furious when i first heard about it i was i would think i was just getting ready to transition out of special operations division to atlanta as an asac and i was actually i was derek um, derek maltz's horse holder there so my brain was a little rattled from working with him side by side for a couple of years yeah but I, I heard about this idea and and i'd seen billy at sod a couple of times that's how i got to know him and billy newell and uh after I heard what was going on, I thought, well, certainly they are doing something to disable these weapons or they're placing tracking devices, some, you know, some high speed, low drag uh, tracking device in there. It could be tracked by satellites to see where the weapons are going. But to hear that the, they even left the firing pins in, I mean, the, a firing pin could be replaced. It's not that hard a thing to do, right. but a, a fully functional 50 caliber rifle one of the most powerful rifles on the planet earth. And how many of those, I mean, there I'm were sure it was hundreds of those that were going into Mexico. There, there were many, they were mostly the Rome arm, or, um, uh, you know, the AK 47 knockoff. Um, and like I said, these guys would go into a store. How many do you have? We have like 20. I'll take all 20. 
I mean, it's it's insane. Wow. It's and they would come in with paper bags of money, and this was happening before the, that group started. But I mean, that's that's how glaring it was when I got there in two thousand seven, and you're like. How can you not prosecute? I mean, it, it, it's unfathomable to me because here's the other thing. Look, all right, even let's say, and I think it's horrific for anybody to think this way. Let's say you don't give a shit what happens in another country. It's Mexico. Hey, Mexico. Well, what about the guns that didn't make it to Mexico? Because I guarantee you that with cartel drugs come through Phoenix, they go to Atlanta, they go to Chicago. I'm sure some of those guns were diverted along with them to go to somebody. What happens with some kid in the U.S. or some cop on I-10 between Phoenix and the southwest border, uh, you know, gets shot doing a car stop? You know, there's a lot of things that could happen with a gun in the wrong people's hands. Um, that their, their lack of caring about that is – the most appalling thing I've seen in 35 years of law enforcement, really. I agree 100 percent. It's it's shocking to hear the, you know, and then for the, uh, I think I read, we're doing our research here. So Eric Holder was held in contempt of court and then President Obama stepped in to exercise executive privilege over the information. But then later it was overturned because it wasn't entitled to that. Uh, it wasn't determined to be privileged information. Does that sound, is that correct? Did I have that right? Yeah, but it took forever. And then the, I think the documents were finally released in 2020, all of the, the, like the, all the documents, which is uh, nine years after the fact, right? Because I testified on June 15th of 2001. And then just yesterday on Fox News, there was something released where I guess ATF is moving ahead with destroying the guns that they do have in custody from Fast and Furious because that's what they, they cut up or, or melt their firearms. But there are pending cases in Mexico. Which I, I guess their justice system is slower than ours, but um, yeah. So I mean, it, it, that case is still every now and then rearing its ugly head, you know. But look, it's the sad part is this: um, there are lessons to be learned for law enforcement from this about what happens when you abandon the general principles of policing. When you see a crime is about to occur, you stop a car, you ask questions, you utilize USV Terry, you catch people in lies, you seize, you know. Uh, evidence. I mean, all that stuff was abandoned in lieu of, hey, let's listen to the wiretap and let's just document and watch. You know, it, there's a, there are repercussions when you take a hands-off approach to doing what cops do every day or when you try to reinvent the wheel. You and know you what just I mean? mentioned, And you just mentioned a very effective tool. You said USV Terry. It's, people have heard it called the Terry Stop. It's the stop and frisk thing. It, it's not a carte blanche thing, but it means you have to develop enough reasonable suspicion that the person has is or will commit a crime and that evidence of that crime may be on them. It's like, And that's one of the reasons why you pat people down for weapons. If you can articulate a reasonable suspicion that you are, you are fearful for your safety or the safety of others, you know, you pat that person down. NYPD was doing that for a long time and taking lots of guns off the street until they outlawed stop and frisk. Right. Yeah. And yeah. what happened? Crime rate goes up because you know why the bad guys know they're not going to get checked. You want to know one thing to keep guns off the street? It's letting them know every time if you're a piece of shit, you're a shit burger and you're out there walking around, some cop sees you, good chance you're going to get caught with a gun. And especially I'd love to see those then get, you know, have uh, have the uh, ATF come in and start throwing a few 924, you know, C's or some other stuff at these guys and watch these guys start doing five years. 100%. I mean, it worked. That's going back to what we, where we almost where we started with that whole trigger lock program that I was working in Bronx Homicide. Yeah. Uh, homicides went from 600 to 200 in the span of a few years. And let's put that in perspective, folks. I mean, you think it's just a statistic. No, we're talking about 400 people who lived that otherwise would have died. And so when you watch the homicide rate go up because of these stupid policies, 
that are happening during COVID, you know, no cash, you know, uh, no cash bail, letting people out so they can go out and kill again or commit additional crimes. The high the homicide rate is the highest ever since CDC started tracking it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that was just in the Bronx. And you got four other boroughs, right? Yeah. Well, the Bronx was the only one that was doing trigger lock when I was there. Uh, Manhattan wouldn't do it. Manhattan DA's office very proud. They they fought tooth and nail against it. Brooklyn eventually started doing it. And then um, my, now my understanding is it's a citywide unit. Well, we started it in 1997. I left in 2001. I think it went citywide sometime within the last five years. So, which is nice. We kind of left the legacy behind, you know, which is cool. But yeah. hey, you were talking about testifying. You said June, I think, 2001. You didn't mean that, right? You meant 2011? I'm sorry. Yeah, June 15th, 2011. Yeah, I was yeah. going to say, because that would be testifying before you were even on ATF. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, was in, I was in the DeLorean from Back to the Future that day. No, it was, uh, yeah, it was 1.21 gigawatts got you back in time, just in time. Yeah, no, it was June 15th, 2011. Thanks for thanks for straightening it out. No, you, no, no, you gotta no, have just, a sense of humor. Yeah, yeah. So let's let's kind of let tell us about closing out your ATF career because um, you moved on. You ended up becoming a look. It kind of hurt you, but you still ended up becoming a special agent in charge, right? Yeah. After leading uh, the leadership and professional development division, the same director uh, asked me if I would go down to Miami because you know there was some issues down there with morale and whatnot. So I, I did went down there originally as the ASAC, uh, which is the number two. I was there um, in that position for um, the the Pulse nightclub shooting, which you know Omar Mateen lived in RAOR, which we you know we worked on following up on how he got the guns and all that stuff, and then. Um, my boss, Carlos Canino, by the way, the same one of the other whistleblowers from Fast and Furious was my boss originally down there. Then Carlos promoted out, and then I got the special agent in charge job. I was there during um, the Fort Lauderdale Airport shooting and then uh, Parkland, which was literally like my my first month back after having the, the cancer surgery, uh, which uh, believe me, that was uh, at the press conference there, I was focused more on let me not pass out because my body hadn't adjusted to being like, you know, deprived of oxygen still. So I didn't let me not pass out during his press conference. So we're more worried about that than, you know, remember what I even said. And then um, so after that, um, about a year after that, I got brought back up to headquarters where I was put in charge of all of ATF's training because they, they had liked what I had done when I was in charge of leadership and professional development. So it was nice. You know, I spent my last few years um, overseeing, you know, all training, including the academy, which, you know, I was tired. You know, frankly, I've been through a lot. My wife had been through a lot. So going down to the academy and seeing all the fresh faces of people that hadn't been, you know, through the grind yet and the politics and the bureaucracy um, was nice. It was a nice gift. One month, uh, you know, one week a month for, for several years to go down there and talk to the fresh new faces. And then I, I wrapped it up um, in October of last year. And then since then, I've just been trying to stay busy. I still speak at the 9-11 Memorial Museum, something I started doing when I was with ATF, you know, about that day and about, you know, the importance of family and, you know, being willing to ask for help when you need help and that PTSD being damaged doesn't mean you're broken, you know, just try to thump that message to folks. Cause I know that's, that's an epidemic in our, in our profession is cops, you know, they, they, they withdraw into themselves and they go into this dark place and some of them hurt themselves. And it's, you know, to me, look, I was in that dark place for a long time. And, um, you know, when I started to reach out to folks, uh, which was a little bit late, you know. I, I I missed a lot of my family time and joy because I you know was so caught up in the job, and so I, I talk about the importance of family and putting family first and taking care of yourself now.
so it, when you said you were in a dark place, you ever get to that point where you had your gun out or anything close like that? I, I, I'll never say I got to the point where I had the gun in hand, but what, what I say were there ever times where I was like, hey, you know, maybe my family would be better off if I did something, you know, than with me here. Yeah, it crossed my mind just, you know, very quickly, once or twice. But more, more importantly is just, you know, I, I would just sit there and put on the TV and I would I would be lying Retreat. if I said I was – yeah, I would, I'd be lying if I said I was even watching what was on TV. I was just – I was – I spent too much time in my own head, you know, and then it was when I came out of surgery and I looked at my wife and my daughter, um, you know, and my son was, he was away with the Coast Guard. And I was like, wow, man, you know, look back at my life. And I'm like, I remember all these great cases, the Bellow case, sex, money, murder, this, that. And I'm like, but I don't have the good memories with my family, you know? And I was like, at that point, it's like, this is bullshit, man. You know, here I'm at the tail end of my career. I don't even know what, the, I didn't know at the time if I had metastasis, if I was, you know, going to die. And I'm like, what a tragedy this is that I, you know, I love them. They're here for me, you know, uh, and uh, always put the job first. And I think a lot of cops do that. And I, you know, I get it. Look, I, what I say when I talk at the 9-11 museum is, hey, it's, it's, absolutely honorable and it's expected of you to give an organization 100% of your effort, but shame on you if you give them 100% of your time and, and too many people do that. And it's, look, it's not just law enforcement too. Uh, you know, with the pressures of society on successful careers and everything, you know what, man, eventually, no matter where you are, like I know when I left ATF within a pay period, you know, other than my really good friends, nobody it gave was a shit. Pete who. Yeah. It was Pete. Who. Yeah. 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 So, hey, let, let me ask you a question. Did you ever read a book by Kenneth Gilmartin called Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement? I, I sat through a lecture from him, but I did not read the book. I got a copy here for you. Since we're close, I'm going to get it to you. Um, I, I tell you, one of the one of the biggest, best eye-opening um, books I ever read, and exactly what you talk about. He talks about retreating into your cave to where you go home and you don't want to make a decision. It's like, I don't. what do you want to eat? I don't care. Just pick something. You know, I just want to sit here, retreat into my little emotional cave. And like you say, maybe I watch TV, maybe I don't. You just, and the worst part is you sit there with your thoughts. Yeah. Um, you know, and it just goes through your head. Hey, let me rewind one more thing too before we kind of close out on some of the stuff. When you were down there and you were being able to direct training and create training, um, what kind of lessons did you incorporate into the curriculum or things that you had the instructors do to learn from the mistakes of Fast and Furious, to learn from the mistakes of, like you said, it's your duty to know? I mean, how did you how did you shape things to take advantage of the hard hard won lessons that you had? Well, the first thing we did is there was, you know, there was not a lot of lack of faith in ATF leadership at that time. So one of the things, and I approached them and they were fine with it. It's like, hey, can we start looking outside of ATF for training? Like we did a lot of internal training, you know, of course, LS 201, leadership skills 201. And then I was like, so what we did is we went out to the Army War College who were great and they, they were more than helpful to, you know, and wanted to help us. Uh, IACP, Leadership of Police Organizations. We brought all of these trainings in um, and we made sure that that sort of stuff was in the curriculum. But our, my belief was if people don't respect leadership right now because of what we went through, then they're not going to respect training that comes from leadership from within. So let's bring outside stuff in. And it was really good. 
But the other thing is, um, you know, we, we also increased mentorship a little bit. But look, the best thing that I could do was try to practice what I preached in my everyday activities. Because people, what I learned is the higher you move in an organization, the more eyes are on you. And if you're not exhibiting the behaviors that you're talking about, then you may as well just be blowing smoke out of your backside. So, um, but yeah, uh, you know, one of the things that we harp on now, and, and one of the last trainings we actually brought in before was actually at the 9-11 Museum, the Memorial Museum. We have a, a civic training there to remind people of why they took this job in the first place, you know, and, and that one is, is life-changing from what I've heard from the folks who've gone through it. But we talk about the importance of taking care of yourself and taking care of your family before you even come to work. Because if, if shit's good at home, then your head will be in the game at work, you know, and vice versa. So, yeah. Good points. And that's, it's, it's very, very encouraging to hear that's going on, especially in an agency as large as NYPD. Yeah. Well, ATF, uh, I think NYPD is doing the same thing, but I know I can only speak to what we're doing at ATF. And the Army War College, like I said, what a great bunch of folks. Yeah. Just, yeah. But, and, you know, some great leadership lessons, too, but it's like anything else. They've had their challenges, but you got to get a different perspective. That's the other thing, too. It, it helps you think differently when you look at the problem differently and look at it how other people look at it, too, not just through your own little echo chamber, you know, your own little prism. So, right. I don't know how to say this. It's kind of like, you know what really sucks is to watch good guys like you and good girls like we've talked to. We've had Sherry Oz on here, the sack of the DEA uh, out in uh, Arizona, just looking at the shit they're dealing with, with all the fentanyl coming across the border. I mean, these folks are probably, I can't even imagine that they're sleeping with all the stuff's going on. You look at all the people, like you say, just giving their heart, giving their blood, sweat, and tears. And to this day, it still pisses me off when I see guys like you and girls like some of the others get just get stomped on by these people and get treated the way that you do. I mean, it's like the way they treated Jay after his firebombing of his house. It's like he was made out to be the criminal, not the criminals who did it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know what to say, man. It's just kind of like I I wish there was somebody I could apologize on behalf of. But but I can tell you this, though. I tell you, you know, from the cops that are out there and from at least me and Murph, I mean, it's like, I mean, we salute you. We tip our hat to you for for staying the course. A lot of people could have said, fuck this. I'm going to go do something else. I'm going to go be a greeter at Walmart. But even in spite of all you went through, dude, you stuck it out and you did it because I think exactly what you did made a difference. You were then getting into the new faces, the new people coming in and showing them <laughs> just like in the Mandalorian, which by the way, Pedro Pascal plays who played Javier in uh, Narcos. See how I tied this all together, Steve, you know, like the Mandalorian, this is the way. This has to be the way. There can be no other way. You, you gotta. We've got to start putting these ethics and um, um, backbone back into law enforcement so that people can trust cops. You know, well, and the fact that you're continuing on here in retirement and and doing the volunteer presentations to help younger people uh, <clears throat> put their priorities in order. You know, we we all say family should be first, but the truth is, it, it usually comes in last. Yeah. Well, it's who we are. You know, I mean, and I'm not defending not paying attention to family and all that stuff. I mean, we got we got to get better at what we do. But I mean, for the cops that are really grinding it out, that love the job, it it, it defines us. You know, I mean, it's who we are. And the, 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 the problem is balancing that out with also being a good father and a good husband and a, a good member of a community where some that's where some folks struggle. And then, of course, we all know there are some guys who show up and they collect the check. And, yeah, you know, yeah. and you know what? Sometimes you wonder, are they the smart ones, the ones that make it to every kid's <laughs> football game and every wedding? Yeah, uh, but now I'm going to disagree. You know, do they make it? To, look, I would love to say I made it to all of them, but you didn't because sometimes things you're just overcome by events. There's some things you cannot do. 
But no, I'll tell you, the ones who just simply take a check and say I should get paid just simply because I'm breathing, we had guys like that that are like, well, I, I get I should get paid just for showing up. It's like you got to do a little bit more than that, Skippy. I mean, you yeah. got to do the job. Yeah. Well, you t- you take an oath to protect and defend. Get your ass out there and protect and defend. Yeah. Well, look, we all know this. My I live my life by the mantra of "You're only as good as your word," but we all know that not everybody lives that way. You no, know, that's the same part. The but if you do, though, I think look, the only thing you take to the grave with you is your reputation. You know, it's not the money. It's not all the fancy toys that you accrue along the way. And I think if if we if you keep that in mind, then you do good things with your life. You know. Well, that's the whole thing. Once you're out of the game, once you're off the job, you don't, I mean, you don't have the badge, the gun anymore. The only thing you got left is your self-respect and your credibility, your reputation. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Hey, now, Pete, you mentioned uh, you're in the process of writing a book. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm right. I, well, I wrote a book on Fast and Furious, um, a lot more detailed than what we spoke about. I wrote it and um, it, it was written in cop language. Is what I was told. So what happened was the, um, you know, the company wanted to have somebody come in and add the, 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 the colorful language, you know, the, the smell of the room, you know, the, the scent, uh, you know, or, or the, 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 the way the sun was reflecting that day. And I was like, you know something? You're right. So it, it's written. It's just being edited and put into a more, you know, I guess uh, you know, appropriate. How soon, how soon before you think we'll see it? Yeah. I'm hoping six months, you know, and we, we look, I had to be careful because I, I name names. I talk about things specific. Did you have to go through a publication review board of any kind? Submit it to ATF? I don't have to, but we will. Um, obviously, we can tell them to pound sand if you know if they want us to change something that's true. Um, but you know, uh, I want to be you know. I don't, look, I worked for that agency for, for twenty years. Um, still have dear friends. I don't want to become you know an enemy with them. But at the same time, I'm not going to let them control you know the, the the narrative here either. The truth is the truth. And look, it's tr- here's one thing I'll say: is I always like when I took over training for ATF, I thought that there's a lot of lessons to be learned from Fast and Furious, and we should do presentations on it. What what went wrong so it doesn't happen again? And their take is, well, no, we don't we don't talk about that. Well, and, if and, you don't and, talk about it, how do you ever prevent it from happening again in the future? Right, and which is exactly why this book's going to come out, so that if some young agent reads it, he'll learn, or she'll learn. Or look, this could happen at some other agency. This might also help some other young agent or, or cop somewhere from from doing something silly. You know what I mean? So was it was it uh, Rich Moraz or Rick Mazza from LAPD? We had right, no Rick Rick Moraz. He was the ca- I was just looking that up too. I was going to look the episode. He was the captain. Uh, uh, at Rampart Division, where the whole Rampart scandal happened, that they made the movie Training Day about. Yeah, and yeah. He, he, you talk about burying your soul. He goes out and does these presentations, but they're going, well, yeah. What can we learn? And it's one of those things. It's he, he'll say it was a failure of leadership. There's some things we should have seen and should have acted on. We never did. And it takes a it takes a set of balls, uh, some brass ones, to go out and say we were wrong. I was wrong. This is the way we should be doing it. And um, yeah, Rick Moraz was. Uh, I mean, that that was even to this day, he still gets choked up when he talks about the impact it had, the lives that were ruined, the lives that were lost. So, yeah, there's a lot of stuff to be learned, but you can't learn from it if you bury it. Exactly. Exactly. Do you you have a name for the book yet? No, no. It's going to be called The Path to Fast and Furious. But obviously, once it's ready to go, that might change. I'll I'll let you know. 
obviously. I'll yeah, get you we'll guys a signed copy. Hey, there you yeah. go. We'll, we'll put it on our book page and we'll promote it. And Murph, and we'll find somebody to read it for you. We have an audible version so Murph can actually <laughs> or do read we have pictures. Does I, it have, I can do is that. it a picture book? Yes. Yeah. Does yeah. it have a connect the dots like color? Does it come with its own crayon for Marines formerly on active duty? <laughs> oh, man. You guys are brutal. Hey, well, they're part of the they're a Department of the Navy. And of course, as we're recording this, uh, it'll come out in January. But again, like I say, the Army game's coming up, right? So go Army, beat Navy. <laughs> All right, man. Well, hey, look, let's bring this to a close. Uh, again, what, man, it's great. And I'll tell you what, we're close. I've got your number here. I'll text you. We'll get together sometime. I'll give you, I'll bring you one of those copies. I tell you, once you read it, it it's really eye-opening. It's the emotional survival for law enforcement. So. No, I'll definitely read it, especially, like I said, it's, a, it's a, a topic that's near and dear to my heart and something that I'm doing with my spare time now is making sure that, you know, that I'm, I'm practicing what I preach, you know, there you so, go. No, I look forward there to you it. Go. You know what I'll do is I'll get Tommy to come up to it and, and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get some guys together. I think that's what we'll do because he's just down in Charlottesville. So I'll, I'll make him drag his happy ass up here. Oh yeah, and if it, if it involves a dinner, he, he'll definitely, Tommy, let me tell you, that guy, he's a, uh, a, a connoisseur of fine foods. Yeah, especially when somebody else is paying. <laughs> well, that's the key. I'm kidding, Tommy. I'm kidding, Tommy. I would never accuse him of being a cheap man. He's the opposite. But no, Tommy. Uh, yeah, he's he's got some great suggestions. We might want him to pick the restaurant. Yeah, we'll do that. Well, hey, we'll do that. Wait, look, man. So uh, stay safe. We're going to wait for the book. We'll definitely have you back on when the book comes out, and we'll talk about that. But hey, this is us saluting you. Say, yep. job well done, Pete. Ah, oh, thanks. thanks Pete. Right back at you. Hey, Merry Christmas, guys. Merry Take Christmas, care, to you. brother. Now this is coming out in January, so don't you guys go? Well, Christmas is over. We're recording this in December, so you two don't go anywhere. Everybody else, stay tuned for the debrief. Man, if you are not impressed by this guy's story, not only that, but um, the just. He wasn't down at ground zero a long time, but he was there long enough that he got cancer, lost mm-hmm. half of his lung capacity, still ran in the tunnel to Taurus, which we talked about. I, I donate to those guys every month, as well as the National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial. I mean, just what stories? And this guy, to your point, Murph, he had the stones to do the right thing. Imagine having DOJ and your own agency basically lined up against you, and you still get the subpoena and you go in front of Congress and you tell the truth. I tell you, I'm getting so tired of hearing stories like in John Mattingly's case about the agencies that refuse to stand behind their people when they're doing the right thing. Uh, it's just sickening to hear. And and for our listeners, just so you understand, the law enforcement, law enforcement culture is a rather closed fraternal organization. Brothers and sisters together carries over into retirement and traditionally have been very protective of each other. But but that's why I say it takes stones to do this because here's a man who knew something wrong was being done and had the integrity to step up and say, that's wrong. We can't do that. But look what it led into. Holy cow, the, the misery that he's gone through, that his family's had to go through. It's, it's just sickening to hear this. But thank you, Pete, for having, you know, having the guts to come on here and tell us your story and go before Congress and tell the truth. That's what law enforcement's all about. Yep. You know, once again, don't let the media tell you what to think. Yep. And uh, 
remember, the truth will set you free. And that's what Pete did. So we hope you guys enjoyed that episode. If you did, head on over to Apple and Spotify. Hit those five stars. Give us some comments. Come come to our Facebook group, our Facebook fan page. Leave those comments for us. Let us know what you think of this and our you know case of the week. Uh, we're going to... St- like I say, change things up a little bit. Uh, also head on over to gameofcrimespodcast.com. More information about the show when there's books, merch, anything that's out there, we put over on the website. Also follow us on that thing they call social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Pod Podcast. <laughs> there we go again. I messed it up the second time in a row. <laughs> at Game of Crimes Podcast. There we go. On Facebook and the Instagram. Uh, but where you got to be, I'm going to tell you where you got to be. And Murph's going to ask me where I got to be. I'm going to preempt it. Where you got to be. I already knew that, Murph. That's why I asked. You got to be on patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. That's where you got to be. We've got such good stuff coming up. We're going to be doing some other uh, specials, you know, coming up that we add. This is above and beyond what we put in that you pay for. We're, we're doing stuff to give you guys more than what you pay for at all different levels. Evil is coming, Guardian of the Realm, Warden of the Throne. So make sure you head on over there, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. That's where the additional fun happens besides what we go. do here. And, and be sure to, enjoy, to join us again next week. We've got a, uh, a former police officer coming on, retired now, who has become a comedian. Trooper. He's a trooper, Murph. <laughs> trooper. And we're still praying for him. We're hoping he gets a real He's job. He's a former trooper. But, uh, <laughs> you had a tough time you saying come trooper. you got to on because it's going to be a it's fun It's going to be a funny one. Yeah. And so make sure you stay tuned for that. But hey, guys, thank you once again for playing the biggest, baddest, recently relaunched, revitalized, refreshed, upgraded, polished, Brand new, shiny, and sparkly for 2023 Game of Crimes.